This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The rebuild of Detroit is filled with stories of people trying to do their own little part, whether it's building businesses in the city, redeveloping neighborhoods or other ideas. There are great things being done in Detroit right now. Still a long way to go. One of them is involved in the book Detroit Hustle, written by freelance journalist and Michigan State University adjunct professor Amy Hamerl. She and her husband left Brooklyn, moved to Detroit. They bought a house that apparently literally had literally nothing in it except probably the walls, for $35,000, and they've rebuilt it into a great home. The reason why, though, they did it is not just building the home. And Amy joins us on the show right now to talk about her book, Detroit Hustle. Amy, welcome. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you. So let's first explain the process of how you moved from Brooklyn to Detroit in the first place. Sure. So I actually got a fellowship at the University of Michigan, uh, a Knight Wallace fellowship to study for a year. And my husband and I decided to take that opportunity. And at the end of it, had to think a lot about where we wanted our lives to be. Uh, We were feeling very priced out of Brooklyn. Uh, We lived in a neighborhood that we were incredibly ingrained in, very tight-knit community that we loved. But Hurricane Sandy had recently hit the East Coast and devastated it. And so we just started thinking about where to make our lives, and we fell in love with the people of Detroit and decided, you know what, this felt like the community for us. And Detroit, as obviously, it's been struggling for a while now, uh, and you were there uh, writing about it for for Crane's business, uh, writing about the bankruptcy, correct? Yeah, so after the fellowship, I got a job at Crane's Detroit Business, and not too long after that, the city declared bankruptcy, so... I'm a business and economics journalist by by trade, so it was a you know a natural fit for me to report on that. It was an unintended windfall as well, because certainly you had a lot to write about. Absolutely, um, you know, both very few people find municipal bankruptcy interesting, yeah. but one of the things I love to do, and I assume probably the, the listeners of your show and at Wharton, sort of figuring out a way to decomplicate tough topics and make them accessible to everyday people, um, so they can understand what's happening in their world. And so, yeah. so it was a great, a great chance to do that. Yeah, we've we've talked about the the, the bankruptcy and the recovery uh, a couple times. Actually, uh, you know, talked with the mayor on the show uh, here as well. Mm-hmm. How is Detroit right now? So I think Detroit's recovery is strong. It's nascent, you know, and you'll hear people who've lived here most of their lives or, you know, several generations will say they've heard this before. And so they're cautiously waiting. At the same time, we are seeing huge amounts of investment come back. We are seeing, you know, actual construction cranes flying in the downtown and midtown areas, which means there are jobs for people, and that's exciting. We are seeing service improvement. We are seeing the response time for police and ambulance, you know, dropping precipitously. What we're trying to do now is say, okay, we've done the low-hanging fruit, like get garbage trucks back on the street, get the street lights back on. How do we think about this city for the future and figuring out how to address 40% poverty? How do we address the school system? How do we make sure that the recovery is for everybody, not just newcomers like myself and my husband who can come here with good middle-class jobs? What are we doing out in the neighborhoods and sort of beyond what I call the golden bubble of the greater downtown area? Mm -hmm. And my book actually talks a lot about that. 
We're talking with uh, Amy Hamerl, who is uh, the author of the book Detroit Hustle, a memoir of love, life, and of home. Okay, so you and your husband uh, are, are moving to Detroit. Uh, was the house one of the first things you did, or was this part of the process, you know, a couple of months into living in Detroit? We bought the house before we even actually lived in Detroit yet. Right. We bought the house before we even actually really understood Detroit yet. Right. So we had the idea. I got the job at Cranes. We decided we were going to relocate permanently to Detroit, but we were still living in Ann Arbor, and the house just sort of fell in our laps. And so that really started our love affair and, and time in Detroit was starting with this house and the West Village where we live, our neighborhood, and, and making our home here. And literally, from, from what I read, there was there was nothing in the house, right? Right. So when we when we first walked into it, we really couldn't see anything because it was you know there were no windows, so it was all boarded up. Yeah. Uh, there was no plumbing, no heating, no electrical. There wasn't a bathtub or a sink. There were no light fixtures. Like the whole thing had basically been scrapped. Um, you know, to everything taken out of it. There were walls. Uh, but even a lot of the trim was missing. You know, people had burned it for heat, you know, different things. So this was, a house was pretty rough as an understatement. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call if you'd like to jump in and talk about uh, Amy's book. It is out now called Detroit Hustle, a memoir of love, life, and of home. 844-942-7866. Okay, so you get into the house. It's boarded up. There's really not, nothing there. The decision to say, yes, this is the house that we wanted, as you said, you you and your husband kind of fell in love with it. A lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't say that initially. Right. I mean, we felt the powerful lure of this house. There was something very special about it. My husband, we'd looked at, we'd been looking for other houses, right? So we did yep. not expect to take on this kind of a renovation. We were looking for something that was more about changing the paint color and maybe doing a kitchen upgrade, right, right. not a full, full up, you know, rehab like this. But there was something, and my husband will say that he fell in love with this house and knew it was the one in the same way he knew I was the one. Sometimes the heart <laughs> just speaks. That's that's a pretty good line. Uh, I, I, I think that really secures the marriage when your husband <laughs> comes up with that line. Right, exactly. Uh, and his his patience. I mean, he's a he's a great man, and his patience has gotten us through this process. Certainly. So, what was I mean? What was the time frame in terms of building this house out? I, I'm guessing that you know you have to get core things done, as you say. Probably right. one of the first things had to be the windows. Uh, right. But but you know it, that, that's a lengthy process when you're re basically you had the good structure of the outside of the house, which from from the pictures I saw, it it looks like it's a beautiful brick home. Almost like you'd you'd find, even though it's 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 a a single family home, it, it almost has the feel of like a brownstone inside of a city. Absolutely. So, the West Village is on the east side of Detroit, and it's called the West Village despite its location because it's just west of Indian Village, which was sort of the mansion, one of the mansion districts where okay. all of the auto barons lived. Ours was the quote-unquote more middle-class cousin next door. And so <laughs> okay. the city that built the middle class, right, a 3,000-square-foot brick single-family home was the middle class. Yeah. Um, but we also have apartment buildings. So it was mixed racially. It was mixed economically. So it's a great neighborhood for that. Um, and as we 
started thinking about what we were doing here and what we what we wanted to build, that was that was really important being here. So, but we didn't know that when we first bought the house in early 2013. This has sort of all unfolded and turned out to be serendipitous, like so much of our experience in Detroit. We buy the house in June. Construction starts in July of 2013, just after Detroit declares bankruptcy. Yeah. So literally, you know, very, the book is very tied to that because the time allows me to both use the house as sort of the microcosm of the bigger economic issues Detroit's facing. So, we're, so it takes us about two and a half years, two years to do the, the renovation. So we did not live in the house for the first six months while we were getting things like plumbing and water. And one of the interesting things I think that my book talks about is early on in the in the decision-making process, we don't have enough money. Right. So we're facing to choosing between windows or water. Which do you put in? Do you put in windows or do you put in plumbing? Right. You can only afford one. Yeah. And Detroit itself is also facing, do we keep the art at the Detroit Institute of Art or do we figure out a way to pay pensions? Pensions are art. Yeah. You know, so it was sort of an interesting conversation to be having. Luckily, both we've we're able to figure out how to have both. Uh, initially, we, we did choose windows because we figured it was important mm-hmm. to rebuild the structure first and get it secured from the elements, and we could do the internal stuff later. Yeah. But it became a big puzzle, and everything just sort of had to happen simultaneously. So it took us mm-hmm. about two, two and a half years to do the rehab. How much of, of this w- was stuff that you and your husband did, and how much did you have to contract out? So when we went into the project, again, because we were thinking we were going to do a smaller project, we thought we were going to DIY this and, and do this ourselves. Right. Yeah. That was that. That's a funny dream. Um, <laughs> I mean, we my father, my father likes to joke. Um, so I grew up in rural Colorado, very blue collar. My you know family, my dad's an excavator. I was the first one in my family to go to college. And he would like to tell you that he doesn't understand how he sent me to college, yeah. only to have me come out with less skills than I went into. He's like, daughter, you cannot rehab this house yourself. You're going to need contractors. Right. So we were blessed to have Calvin and Christian Garfield, the two most gentle, wonderful souls as our contractors. Fair price, good quality, scholars and gentlemen is what a friend of mine called them. I just We couldn't have been more blessed. And who says that about their contractors, right? Sure, yeah, right. So we, you know, we got really lucky. So we did some of the work. We helped them, but they are really the, the ones who deserve all the credit. How, how has your neighborhood turned around in, in the time since you've been redoing this house? So when we moved in, you know, you don't know what you don't know when you start with something. Yeah. So when we first saw the neighborhood, it felt rougher than it was in actuality because we didn't, we didn't know Detroit well enough yet. And so we learned quickly that this was actually one of Detroit's more stable neighborhoods. And part of it is because it's on the National Register of Historic Places. That means people are committed to it and love it. So even while things are falling apart around this neighborhood, people are mowing their lawns. They're mowing, you know, the abandoned house next door. Just like ours, Mm. the neighbors were keeping it boarded up, keeping the lawns mowed. They were making sure that the neighborhood did not fall into disrepair even as sort of the ravages of time and the foreclosure crisis did sort of start to encroach. But as we've been here three years now, the change is remarkable. So places, you know, people buying homes, uh, home prices increasing, which can speak to gentrification, can speak to that issue, but also for our neighbors who have been here since the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, who've spent their lives here, Suddenly they're like, our houses are worth something. We're no longer underwater. This 
is an asset to us. We can afford to send our mother to, you know, live in an assisted living facility or put our kids in college. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting conversation about about that in terms of home prices and what that appreciation can mean. We've also had, when we moved in, there was not a restaurant. There was no coffee shop. There wasn't anything that you might assume as traditional amenities of a city. Mm-hmm. And now we have one entire street that had been empty of its commercial uh, strip, just empty. We have Detroit Vegan Soul. We've got Kraftwerk. We've got Red Hook Coffee. We've got Sister Pie. Like all of these small businesses have been able to open up. And one of the things I love about it is in, in other cities, people use pop-ups as sort of like, you know, high-end brands will pop up somewhere. They're kind of, you know, maybe a little bit um, silly or fun. Here in Detroit, pop-ups. You know, small businesses, restaurants, bookstores, retail, popping up somewhere is about testing the economic waters. It's about proving to the haters that there is actually demand. So the city of Detroit in 2012 had done sort of a – worked on a project that put pop-ups in this neighborhood, and it proved that there was really intense demand. And since then, it's given the proof to the banks. It's given proof to investors that they can help these small businesses get open, which is one of the economic development stories I love, and I I cover economic development. So if you're putting a percentage on it right now, what's the percentage of – uh, of businesses that have come in and, and then probably the percentage of businesses that still could come in to the city of Detroit right now. I would think it's still a, a very much a high number on the, on the ladder there. Oh, yeah. So we've had a lot of new businesses open up, um, you know, it, not just in this neighborhood, but, you know, in the downtown, midtown, Corktown area. So that's, yeah. that's the challenge in Detroit, right, is all of the reinvestment is sort of happening in what I call the 7.2 greater – you know, downtown area, the golden bubble, sure. where you can sort of look and see all of this great investment and new things happening. What are we doing about expanding it out? We're 139 square miles. Are we making sure we're taking care of all 130? We are starting to see that come out to what used to is called the Avenue of Fashion, uh, sort of a further out neighborhood in the city. And it used to be high-end shops. And this is, you know, your furriers were there back in the 50s and 60s, very elegant gone on through some hard times, emptied out, starting to see reinvestment there, new restaurants open, new stores. And one of the things I love most about that area and the West Village is that a lot of the small businesses that are opening, the owners also live in the neighborhood. Either they're from there or they've moved to the neighborhood. So it's not just, you know, it's a a whole commitment. Like Hugh uh, Yarrow, he owned a great sushi place out in the suburbs of Detroit. And he sold that. He sold off his interest in that, moved into the West Village to open craft work, his restaurant, and lives above it. He is not just a business owner in this neighborhood. He's a resident, so he is very committed to the to the whole picture of what it means to to own and live here. You know, it's it's interesting. I was going through the book, and uh, there's a there's a paragraph that you have almost towards the end of the book, and it it really it resonated with me because it remembered. It reminded me back to when I bought my house with my ex-wife back then. Well, she is my ex-wife now, but back then. Mm-hmm. And and it's about the front door. And it's amazing how much a front door to a house can really mean so much to the owners of the house and 
kind of the feel of the neighborhood as well. And, and you talk about you. I mean, you literally take it down to the detail about what your husband did, about what, I guess the contractors in terms of the color that they painted it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's you know that's a that, I think that's a very important part uh, of the understanding of of rebuilding a house and 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 in some respects rebuilding a neighborhood. Absolutely. I mean. What we see, there's a there's another section in the book that kind of always stuck with me that I didn't expect. But so when I was living back in Denver, and I'm from Colorado originally, yeah. you know, my ex-husband and I sort of, he was a contractor and we'd be working and we'd drive by these houses at night and, you know, see these people living inside their homes and looking inside their windows and imagining what their lives might be like. And now I recognize that we're the, my husband and I now are the family inside that house. And people sort of look at our front door. They look at this house and imagine what our lives might be like. And it's really important to us, sort of this intersection between us and the neighborhood and the community, uh, all of our other neighbors and sort of their front doors and what they do. The fact that we don't just hide in our backyard. This is a neighborhood where you sit out on your front porch. We sit on each other's stoops. You know, we go around the corner. This is a neighborhood of people who don't wish to be anonymous. Some people wish to live a life of anonymity. For us, it was about being a part of this community. And and sort of the front door we did, you're right, was a signal to this community that we were here and we loved it. We weren't putting up security gates. Uh, We weren't trying to keep people out. We were trying, you know, just like the rest of our neighbors, we were having a front door we were proud of. We're talking with uh, Amy Hammerl, who is the author of the book Detroit Hustle, a memoir of life, love, or I should say of love, life, and home. The book is out now. It's a really good uh, testament to uh, the the rebuilding of Detroit. Uh, as you sit here now and, and doing the work you do at, at Michigan State, and by the way, I, I wish I had time to get into the whole dynamic of you having gone and done studying at Michigan, but now you're working at Michigan State because that's a problem in itself. Uh, yes. But I was going to say that my students actually made me burn my University of Michigan sweatshirt my I, first semester teaching at Michigan State. I bet they did. I bet they did. <laughs> but but when you think back, and, and now that you've written this book, is, is there anything that that really kind of encompasses this whole process for you in in terms of what you've written in the book? Oh, that encompasses the whole process. You know, that's a really great question. Um, because there's, I, I guarantee there are so many little pieces to this that, that kind of resonate moments that you've kind of gone through in the last couple of years. I mean, I think I love, I love the section at the end where I'm, you know, the contractors have finally left and it feels lonely because we're so used to them as family <laughs> in our home. And I'm looking out the window, and I can see the Detroit River sparkling, you know, in the distance. We're a block off the river. Belle Isle, the sort of amazing park, is right there. But the thing that sort of sits in my window is the liquor store sign that I can see. And there's, you know, trees kind of, you know, shading it. But it's beer, liquor, wine, and these kind of neon colors. And I can't say why it made me feel secure and good. Like, I was here in this very beautiful environment, but still a part of a city. It just, and the river right there, there was something about that connectivity. And then hearing my husband start to mow the lawn and, and <laughs> the, the kids in the, in the you know backyard next door laughing, it was just sort of this moment of being and knowing that I was in the right place at the right time yep. and sort of security in that. I will say one of the things I didn't expect. Um, so when I actually pitched this book, it was more of a uh, just a nonfiction story of where Detroit was. It was not a memoir. Right. 
And the editor who bought it said, we want a memoir because we need to understand who does this, who moves to the murder capital of America to yeah. build a life. Yeah. And I, so I started out not, I just had to start writing and figuring out what that was and let those connections come. And this turned out to be a book about me and my dad yeah. in a way I never expected. Um, and so a lot of, and sort of who my dad is and our relationship and him as sort of a through character, yeah. that was something that was very surprising to me uh, when I started it. Uh, it's great work. Amy, congratulations. We wish you all the best there. And uh, I, I'm sure you don't wear any uh, maize and blue now. Uh, it, I it's, do not. <laughs> it's, all, it's all green and white. So uh, thank, you very, thank you very much. Thank you so much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.